So we pray together. Father, we acknowledge that we are on a movement, a movement further into your heart, more trusting in your arms, more transformed in your likeness. Father, sometimes we acknowledge and we confess that we resist the sanctifying work of your Spirit within us. And it's hard to trust you. And we trust ourselves and the worlds and the futures that we can create. And we're asking that as we keep coming before your word, Lord, just continue your work within us and keep shaping us. We want to be moldable by you. And we know that there's places yet where you have yet to take us. We ask that through the work of your spirit within us, in ways that we can hardly comprehend, understand, or even accept, to know that you are taking us to good places more fully in you. And Lord, wherever there are walls yet to come down, we ask that your word, that your word and your truth would invite us to those places. That we would find safety and trust in who you are. That as we learn to prove you or and or, that we see that you have proven yourself and you are faithful. And so our trust and our faith and our life in you grows. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I will never forget the day that I got my driver's license. I have been in love with having a car ever since, and a big part of my life has always been taking road trips in the summer. I remember my first road trip ever with friends. I remember packing suitcases and strategizing like it was one giant game of Tetris. And I love setting up for a road trip where I'm like a, a pilot inside of a cockpit and I have everything exactly where I want it. When I first started going on road trips, I had to make playlists off of tapes. You'll read about these in your history books. And they... <laughs> And it took a lot of work to do this. So you would think and you'd think and you'd think all the way through as you recorded in real time these songs you were all putting on this mixtape you were going to put in your cassette player and listen as you would go. And they sort of became the soundtrack of the experience. And to this day, I can't hear certain songs without thinking about road trips or places I was driving to or prayers that I had with the Lord as I was driving there listening to that song in that state at that time. I went a little ways down memory lane and had some fun with this this past week. Um, this is a picture of me right before leaving for Dort College, my first car. And um, I know that whistle was for the car. And I loved that car, and I loved going fast. One of my favorite things about cars is how fast you can hurl yourself down the freeway in these things. Some people collect on the back of their motorhomes, you know, like the little colored in states for all the places where they've been in North America. Um, I've been collecting speeding tickets um, from nine states and three Canadian provinces now. And I'm quite proud of this collection, really. And Every time I'm about to head on another one of these trips, I get excited. To this day, I try to find an excuse to take a road trip every summer. And I have distinct memories. Some of my favorite memories in life are about road trips that I've taken. When I first went off to seminary right before I left, um, I traded it in for this, um, this 78 vet. Um, the catalog officially had it listed as metallic cat puke brown. That's, that's the color. And the interior was about the same. I loved road trips in that car. I mean, that was a head-turner, you know? And, 
It was just fun taking off and being on the road and just driving and driving and driving. And I don't know if you have memories like this too. Most people recite when they talk about the most vivid memories they have from their childhood, they often have to do with family vacations and times where they left. There's an openness of spirit that happens with us when we go somewhere new because we know and we are about to experience something new. Israel had a playlist for its travels. The Psalms of Ascent, Psalms 120 to 34, are 15 psalms near the end of the Psalter that are the collection of psalms that the people of Israel would sing as they were way on their way into Jerusalem. You see, there was three mandatory festivals for every good and God-fearing Jew, Feast of Weeks, Feast of Tabernacles, and Passover. And for all of these, you would journey back to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast, which would typically be days at a time, if not a full week. So during this time, you can imagine... Try to imagine if the United States had three major holidays during the year where everybody in the country all traveled to the same place. I mean, imagine how busy the roads would be. Imagine people traveling just in absolute flocks and in caravans. And there's a sort of this overarching atmosphere of celebration as we journey together. And we would all go, maybe like for Mardi Gras, the whole country all goes to New Orleans. And at Christmas, we all went to L.A., and at Easter, we all went to New York. I mean, imagine a country moving like this. Well, as they, over time and over the years, Israel developed songs that they would sing during this journey. And they have these 15, and those are collected in the Psalms of Ascent, Psalms 120 to 134. And so the psalm that we want to read from this morning is right in the middle of this. And it's one of my favorites. This is Psalm 131. I'll read it for you now. My heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me, but I have calmed myself and quieted my ambitions. I'm like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. And so as we try to imagine this morning an entire nation traveling together, entering into worship together, developing this playlist that that they would have, and, and the children start singing these songs, and I imagine the atmosphere gets more playful, and the adults start joining in, and everybody's moving into Jerusalem. Some say that the reason why there's 15 psalms in the Psalms of Ascent is there were 15 steps into the temple in Jerusalem, and that people would often stop on each step and recite the next psalm, stop on the next step and recite the next psalm. But these were the songs of their journey into an encounter and experience of the Lord. And what I want to do with you this morning is just consider maybe five different ways that worship is intended to affect us, as it would have the Israelites as they would have been on this journey. Number one, Worship equals a breakdown of arrogance. Every time we gather in worship, there's like a statement that we're all saying without actually saying it. The reason why I worship is because I want to say in front of you and in front of my God, there is a God and it is not me. There's something about the worship experience that is supposed to do that every single time. There is a God and it is not me. I was made for something else, not just my own self. Worship is supposed to break down our arrogance. In a reflection on this passage, Beth Moore puts it like this. She says, Above all things besides love, humility is the truest sign of intimacy with God. 
Like little else, a humble spirit says that we really do get it. Humility is the truest sign of intimacy with God. This makes perfect sense, doesn't it? If you've gone into the heavenly throne room, if you've spent time with the Lord, how could we stand before a being like that and not be humbled? And worship is supposed to do this to us. There's this convicting element of there is a God, and it isn't me. And that's part of what happens at the beginning of worship. Worship, too, is when we stand before the things that that just cause awe and inspiration within us. John Calvin referred to creation over and over again as the theater of God's glory. I'm humbled when I come before God. I'm humbled when I'm back in the Word. And I'm often humbled when I'm in front of the things that He's made. There's a reason why we feel small in front of the stars. Why we feel humbled when you stare out into the vast expanse of an ocean or in front of the size of a mountain. In our photography class, it continues to take. Brittany Duncan offered this contribution, this picture. And it was fun to just sit and stare into it again because these are the kinds of things you have to do. You've got to stare into them long enough. This is what creation does for us in the theater of God's glory. Is it makes you sit still long enough not to just quickly see it, but to start to experience it. How gravity is actually beaten as each individual snowflake clings to each other as it hangs off of a ridge. How water freezes as it moves. If you are in this scene and you stop long enough and you can actually listen, not just to the rumble and tumble of thoughts inside of your own head, but the spilling of water over rocks. And we're taken outside of ourselves. We're reminded that this isn't about us. And this is a conviction that worship is supposed to instill within us. Sometimes we're at a loss for words in these moments, rightly, because there's nothing left to say. Creation screaming God's glory. Sometimes creation is our best choir director, isn't it? We, we, we arrive at a place of humility so often when we put ourselves before this stuff. Now, of course, the, the temptation here is to, to say that we've become so small, right, that especially in Reformed circles, we talk about the sovereignty of God, and there's sort of this, this trembling before this sovereignty notion of God, that God is in control of all things. Well, at its worst, that it leads us to a place of, of victimization, that there is a big God and he's moving things around and we're so small that we're sort of just peons, that we're afterthoughts, that God moves and, and sort of people are just tumbled in the wake of his decisions. And the psalmist doesn't want us to have this picture of God. There's this balance of his sovereignty because the psalmist creates it for us but then quickly transitions to this image of a child on a parent's lap. And the obvious affection and connection that takes place there. That our God can be so sovereign and so big and so tender all at the same time. And worship takes us into that space between a massive and infinite God and one who is tender and personal all at the same time. Point number two. Worship is the embrace of mystery. It's the figuring out this line between our calling in life as followers of God and and stewards of creation and being a fascinated observer of it, right? We are are gathered here in this place as students, and this line kind of baffled me about how you read this in a psalm in a place of Christian higher education. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. I mean, if ever there was a reason not to go to class today, 
I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. So what is the psalmist really getting at here? Like what are, how are we responsibly in pursuit of knowledge of God and yet reverent of the mystery that he is? There's a dance that we're called to have as believers, isn't there, in that space. The things that we can know and the things that we can't. There's theological conversations all the time between right, the things that we should responsibly be in pursuit of and trying to wrap our minds around. None of the things that we're not supposed to wrap our minds around, just the things we're supposed to open ourselves up to. And what's the, what's the balance between righteous and holy and godly use of your mind and, and intellect and a study of all that God has made and the creational order and how it's unfolding and how to be an observer of that and a co-creator with God in the unfolding of creation, a task that you're going to hear at Dort College all the time because that's what this place is all about. But how do we know to be silent when Scripture is silent? I'm actually getting to study and be part of a, a group that's rewriting the educational task and framework of this school. And a verse that I came across that I was reflecting on on this that I think has to be in this document is Deuteronomy 29, verse 29. It says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may follow all the words of this law. Isn't that a beautiful balance? We're called to be fully engaged in this world. We're called to, to set ourselves apart for, for offering wisdom to the world about how God creates everything. And yet we can't be locked up in our ivory towers debating how many angels can dance on the head of a pin and debating back and forth of things that just really aren't going to play out in the real world. And there's this balance between knowing when we're actually hitting the point of just studying pie in the sky when we die theology as opposed to cake on the plate while we wait theology and we're somewhere right in the middle knowing that worship is to be this transcendent experience that takes us out of our little selves and yet at the same time it's only to prepare us so that we can go back in and be actively involved and engaged and be salt and be light. And worship is this retreat and it's a return. It's like a breathing in and a breathing out of God, of us as we come to him. So that we learn how to make this dance and do it really well. We learn the line between pursuit and wonder. We have reverence for God and the things that really are beyond us. And an understanding of the things that we are to pursue with all that we can. It's my favorite quote on figuring out this balance from an early church father named Anselm. It goes like this. I do not seek, O Lord, to penetrate thy depths. I by no means think my intellect equal to them. But I long to understand in some degree thy truth, which my heart believes and loves. For I do not seek to understand that I may believe, but I believe that I may understand. Isn't that a beautiful description of exactly where we're at and how we walk this balance and figure this out. Worship principle number three. Worship is freedom from the tyranny of self-interest. It's not just about not being arrogant and about being humbled, but it's actually about God taking us outside of ourselves. We sing and experience something bigger so we don't have to just live within the limitations of what my mind can get and the things that I'm all wrapped up in. It sets me free. Some commentators have argued that the, the psalms that are found in the Psalms of Ascent are actually a collection of offerings that people wrote, poems that they wrote and deposited into the temple treasury as part of their thank offering. That as they came before God, 
and found freedom from themselves and comfort in who he is as they came from their life all outside, wherever it was, wherever they're preoccupied with, whether the harvest was going to come in big that year, whether their wife was going to be able to come to full term with a child that they were pregnant with and been waiting for for so long, that whatever their trials were in life and they were struggling, they could come back before a God who was bigger than it all, write these things down, and then put it in as their thank offering. And I love that imagery that even these psalms would be that. Something that people wrote down and then offered back before God. God, free me from myself. Does worship do that for you? Do you go to worship with the intent of finding something bigger than just our own ideas? Do we come to this book every time just to reinforce the things that we think we already believe or to be shaped and changed again? The reason why I love the Psalms of Ascent because it's the road trip, right? It's the open spirit to whatever it is I'm going to experience, a place I've not been before. Can you and I come before the Word with the same sort of excitement? I'm going on a road trip, and I'm going into the Word to a place where I've never been before. And I'm going to see things I've never seen before. And my God has a depth that I haven't even begun to fathom or comprehend. And He wants me, and He's inviting me deeper and deeper. I want us to cultivate a sense of excitement every time we come in a moment of worship, every time we come back before the Lord, every time you have another moment alone with him in devotion. This is the purpose and the excitement and the motivation of that time. God might do something new again. Jesus even said it, right? I have so much more to say to you. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, right, he will reveal these things to you. He will speak. We have that presence of God within us. And ironically within us to free us from us. Worship principle number four. The psalmist reminds us here that worship is a transfer of hope. So often we make our best plans, right? And we're trying to figure out where we're going in life. We have ambitions. We have goals. We have things that we want to accomplish. And worship makes us ask ourselves whether those ambitions are about the things that we want, whether they are of the flesh or whether they are of God. And the psalmist acknowledges that there's a, an exchange of ambition that takes place when we come before God. I'm imagining somebody walking back into Jerusalem and they're talking about their ambitions. I have calmed myself and quieted my ambitions. I don't know when the psalmist writes this psalm the way that they do. He says, my heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I don't concern myself. He's stating all of these things as if they're actually fact. And I'm trying to decide to the psalmist, is he talking himself into it? Is he reminding himself of truth the same way we come to Scripture? You and I live out as hypocrites every single day. There are things I know and I teach and I preach off of this stage and then I go home and I don't do. But we come back before the Word again and again so truth speaks over us and we absorb it deeper. We come back before worship because here's the place where we get changed and we get shaped. You don't go get all your stuff together and then come back and worship. You go to worship in order to get your stuff together. And that's the promise of a God that is so filled with grace. And I love this idea of a transfer of hope. I have ambitions. I have things that I think I want in life. Things that I think will make me comfortable and things that I think will make me happy. But it's in a place of worship where God destroys those within me and gives me a better dream and a bigger vision. And finally, worship principle number five. The Bible paints such a clear picture for us that worship is our home. We were made to do this. We should feel more comfortable here 
And I don't know how the church has gotten this one so wrong. We're so afraid to reveal our sins, to confess things that are wrong within us before a body of believers. But this should be home and where we are safe. We are among our brothers and sisters. This is our family. We are home when we are here. And not only are we home when we are here, but we're actually sampling our eternal home when we are here. There is never a picture of heaven in Scripture that doesn't involve worship. Perpetual, ongoing worship. Maybe the greatest practice we have of what we will experience when we are fully in front of the face of Christ, participation in in actual sitting at the table at the wedding supper of the Lamb, when we are worshipers. And not just liturgical church 70 minutes on Sunday worshipers, like all of life worshipers, all of these things laid bare, God having all of it, all of it, all of it. Maybe this is our sampling. Maybe this is the taste of home and who we are made to be. We get to come before God and his people and be exactly who we are and who he created us to be. No pretense, no masks, totally free. And it is one of my deepest prayers for this campus that we will be able to do that together. That when you come back after a hard day to your roommates or in the relationships that are romantic that are cultivated on these grounds or in friendships or in class, in Bible studies and in worship and in prayer, that we are in pursuit of a deeper level of intimacy and honesty because every heart longs to know and to be known. And you and I are given a freedom in Christ that the rest of the world just simply cannot know where you get to come before the one who made you and everybody else who acknowledges the same thing, be completely vulnerable and broken and be accepted This is the vision of the body of Christ that gets painted for us. To be a friend of sinners and a sinner among friends and figure out how to do this together.